Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Pinselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, some promising numbers regarding smoking rates in this country. According to the CDC, smoking rates are down from 18% of the population in 2013 to 15% this year. That large drop represents hundreds of thousands of former smokers, and that's good news. It is, and if you look back to smoking rates in 1965, an astonishing 42% of Americans smoked. And as the old cigarette ad used to say, we've come a long way, baby, but we're (laughs) not there yet. And according to the CDC survey, the nation's tougher smoking laws have had an impact. Laws banning indoor smoking, even smoking in public spaces outdoors, have marginalized smokers in public settings many of whom say they were simply tired of feeling like social pariahs. And the higher tax of cigarettes has priced them out of reach for a number of smokers as well. These public health laws really do have an impact, Margaret. That's right. And we have to acknowledge that we've seen some stepping up of corporate responsibility as well, making an impact. The CVS pharmacy chain is claiming some of the responsibility for the drop. They stopped selling cigarettes at all of their thousands of stores nationwide earlier this year, saying cigarettes don't fit in with their new focus on health and prevention, and they believe that measure has had an impact on the number of their customers who quit. As we know, it's the leading cause of preventable deaths in this country. About 450,000 Americans die each year from smoking-related causes, and within a few years of quitting, the risk of early death decreases significantly. And we know that cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of death in this country, something that cigarette smoking contributes enormously to, and that's something that our guest today is quite focused on. Dr. Darshak Sangavi is the director of the Preventive and Population Healthcare Models Group at the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation. They've launched the Million Hearts Model, a program that's aimed at incentivizing medical providers and practices to work towards the goal of eliminating a million heart attacks and strokes. We'll also have Lori Robertson uh, come by. She's the managing editor of factcheck.org. She's always on the hunt for misstatements spoken about health policy in the public domain. But no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to chcradio.com. And as always, if you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter at chcradio. We'd love to hear from you. Now we'll get to our interview with Dr. Darshak Sangavi in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's headline news. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. It would appear all those willingly chilled participants in last year's Ice Bucket Challenge have paid off. What began as a social media campaign to raise awareness and funds for ALS, better known as Lou Gehrig's disease, which cripples and eventually kills its sufferers, was far more successful than anyone anticipated. While the campaign sparked criticism from a number of sectors, the tens of millions of dollars raised went straight to scientists long working on research to find a cure. And it seems there's been a breakthrough because of that funding, specifically on the research focused on a protein called TDP43 that in some cases is linked to cell death in the brain or spinal cord of patients, and that by inserting custom-designed protein, it allowed the cells to return to normal. Lead author of the study, Dr. Jonathan Ling of Johns Hopkins, says the therapy could also work for a common cause of mental deterioration, frontotemporal dementia. The ALS Association managed to raise $115 million with that campaign. 
A Colorado program that has led to a 50 percent reduction in unintended pregnancies since 2009, especially among teens, will live to see another year. The program, which provides free long-term contraception, such as IUDs to young women and low-income women, had been funded by private donation. When the legislature was approached to pick up the funding after the promising study, it was rejected by conservative lawmakers. More private donations have brought in about $2 million. Not only were pregnancies reduced dramatically, the number of Colorado residents seeking public assistance was also reduced. At least 15 states are now working to fund similar programs to help teens and economically challenged women avoid unwanted pregnancies with the long-acting contraceptive. PrEP does the trick, apparently. An experiment in San Francisco has led to some very promising results. Participants who were HIV negative, who took a daily prophylactic dose of Truvada, a virus-inhibiting drug, remained HIV-free after a year in the program. Critics of the one-pill-a-day experiment worried less condom use would lead to higher infection rates. The data showed while some participants did catch other STDs, none of the 600-plus participants contracted HIV, even those with HIV-positive partners. Conversely, in an English study, some participants were given Truvada and others received a placebo. In that group, nine cases of infection per 100 participants were reported. With 50,000 new HIV cases per year in this country alone, mostly among young men of color, this could be a powerful new tool in preventing infection. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. We're speaking today with Dr. Darshak Sanghavi, uh, Director of the Preventive and Population Healthcare Models Group at the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation. Dr. Sanghavi recently served as the Managing Director of the Engelberg Center for Health Reform at the Brookings Institution. And he's also served as the Chief of Pediatric Cardiology at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. Dr. Sanghavi is an award-winning medical educator and author with numerous scientific studies and publications, including his critically acclaimed best seller, A Map of the Child, A Pediatrician's Tour of the Body. Dr. Sanghavi earned his medical degree from Johns Hopkins and completed his residency in cardiology fellowship at Harvard Medical School and Boston Children's Hospital. Dr. Sanghavi, welcome back to Conversations on Healthcare. Pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, and you were uh, on the show when you were at the Brookings Institution and discussing the campaign to inform the American public about the dramatic changes under the Affordable Care Act. And they were very dramatic (laughs) and uh, (laughs) hopefully behind us. uh, No more court cases ahead of us, we hope. And one of the goals, though, of the ACA was to improve prevention uh, by promoting access to good primary care. And now you're at the Center for uh, Medicare and Medicaid Innovations overseeing something that's quite exciting, the Million Hearts Cardiovascular Risk Reduction Model. And it's a very ambitious effort to prevent cardiovascular disease. Uh, And I'm wondering if you could tell our listeners about the goals of the Million Hearts uh, program, who you're targeting, and why it could turn out to be so revolutionary. We know that prevention is a noble thing for us clinicians to all be doing. Um, And we'd really like to enhance and make that easier. Now, we know that simply by enhancing access to care, in other words, by giving people health insurance, making sure that uh, doctors are aware that preventive care is good. That is part of the solution. But it turns out it's really not enough. We still believe, for example, that about 90% of heart attacks and strokes in older people could be prevented by better use of prevention currently. 
So the question is, how do we make that better? And, you know, traditionally, the way Medicare's handled it is to say, well, tell you what, you clinicians out there, you report to us on whether you're doing all of these things. Are you checking people's blood pressure? Hey, this, not only are you checking it, here's the target, we'll pay you more. He, are you checking cholesterol? Here's the target, we'll pay you more. Now, I can understand, and I hope many clinicians can understand why a large payer like Medicare would do that. You know, it's sort of one of the easiest ways to sort of pay for performance. But clearly, many doctors also feel that that's, to some extent, removing a little bit of clinical judgment from them, and they feel that's not the best approach to prevention. And I tend to agree as a clinician that we really want to empower doctors to uh, do a better job of prevention. And that's where this Million Hearts model is so revolutionary. The bottom line is rather than sort of piecemeal looking at all of these different preventive pieces, we are going to assist clinicians, really essentially make it easy for them to simply calculate a 10-year cardiovascular risk. Every person who comes in will be told, hey, over the next 10 years, given your particular risk profile, you know, and they'll put in their age and ethnicity, maybe their cholesterol, whether they're smokers, do they have diabetes, this is the risk that you're going to have a heart attack or stroke in the next 10 years. And then the clinician will work with that patient to say, well, did you know if you do any of these things, for example, you control your blood pressure, stop smoking, you'll reduce your risk to this amount. And it's a really concrete way to mm -hmm. encourage the patients and doctors to talk together, say, well, hey, this is the individualized plan I'm going to come up with. And the bottom line is that what the model test does is we will then pay providers to do that screening. Um, and then for their highest risk patients, we will pay additionally depending on how much that overall risk across the practice. And there's no downside to this. So it's really, in other words, mm -hmm. if you have trouble with it, it doesn't work for you, you're off no worse than you were mm -hmm. before. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if you succeed, you can make more money. Well, Dr. Sang, we would be really interested to hear uh, what kind of data, in addition to the data that you need to award the performance Based payments, what are you looking at in terms of the patients? Are clinicians reporting data on what the individual risk factors are? Is there any level of randomization looking at cohorts of patients uh, who are not getting this risk assessment versus those who are in, I guess, how granular is the data that you'll be able to look at uh, at the end of the project? Maybe you could tell us just a little bit about sure. that. Great question, because it's important to emphasize this is a model test. It's actually one of the largest tests of paying for prevention that Medicare has ever done. We are recruiting 720 practices. If you sign up for it, each practice will then be randomized to be either the intervention or control group. Uh, so it'll be about 300,000 Medicare beneficiaries total in this model test. And we've really tried to make it simple, again, realizing that there's nothing clinicians hate more than having to sort of report more things. Mm -hmm. And so the way we're going to try to address that, if you sign up for the test, we will provide practices a simple online tool that in, into which you input these sort of few pieces of data and the patient's identifier. It'll give you the risks or the decision support, and then it'll handle all the billing on the back end and it'll report all that data. So you don't need to do additional data reporting on top of that. The other thing we'll do is we're going to make what's called an API ideally available to other vendors. So if you have an existing electronic medical record and you want to build this in, uh -huh. you can do that as well and Great. then seamlessly yes. report that. To Good people. idea. Yeah. That's, that's the idea. You know, the devil's in the details, but we have gotten the proper contracting support and we're 
developing those tools so that hopefully that won't be a, won't be too big of an issue. Well, you know, to undertake such a large initiative, you certainly need a, a sort of a, a village of supporters, uh, and you do have a, a lot of really key partners. Uh, the American College of Cardiology, the American Heart Association, and also the U.S. Surgeon General's Office is also promoting the campaign. Uh, Talk to our listeners about how these organizations are assisting and what roles uh, will others play to achieve this vision? So I think that one guiding principle at CMS we have is that we really want to rely on the existing clinical expertise in the community um, and not feel that we are sort of operating in a bit of a vacuum. And so if we're going to be developing this 10-year risk score, I mean, that's a pretty big scientific lift. You know, we got to make sure that the, we have all of that right. And the way we thought that we should do it, and the easy strategy was simply to use what the American Heart Association and American College of Cardiology have essentially endorsed for the past two years. They also now are endorsing this broad payment model test. We want to make sure that we have listened to our clinical partners, and that's why we have really tried very hard to get the American College of Physicians, as you said, the U.S. Surgeon General's Office, um, and other partners on board as well. So I think that moving forward, as this model test continues, which will be planned for five years, we may tweak the model as the years go by in response to sort of feedback from our clinical partners and those professional associations. And maybe they say the, the model needs to be adjusted in this way. There's a new medicine that's come out. Mm-hmm. You know, we've heard about new inhibitors. That may be incorporated, and we'll have an annual review where we'll try to incorporate that as well. Hmm. I want to sort of put ourselves in the, you know, put ourselves at that, uh, the locus of the project in the primary care office where we all recognize that the underlying causes of poor cardiovascular health and um, bad outcomes, obesity, poor diet, lack of exercise, uh, cigarette smoking, uh, high cholesterol and uncontrolled high blood pressure are obviously the huge factors. And so you calculate, sort of imagine calculating this risk score for your patient and the patient looks back at their physician or nurse practitioner or PA and says, but how can I quit smoking? I've been smoking for 30 years. That's really the point at which it's no longer a 15-minute visit, right? You're trying to now go down a different pathway. And really the same is true with obesity and exercise. Is the Million Hearts campaign helping providers at that level in primary care with what happens next about reducing those risk factors? Yeah, I just want to make sure I emphasize that this model test is voluntary, but we are currently recruiting practices. So Mm -hmm. it takes only about five minutes to sign up. And again, there's essentially no downside risk. Having said that now, you say, well, hey, what am I going to get out of it? I know I'm supposed to do a better job with blood pressure and smoking, as you said. What are you doing for me other than just saying that, hey, these are issues? We do think that awareness and having a new way to talk to patients is a side benefit. Mm -hmm. How do we have that conversation about, well, what does it mean to quit smoking and how much will it really help me? And can I actually visually see the benefit? You know, several folks like the Mayo Clinic and others have already developed really cool sort of visualizations that say, well, if you quit smoking, your risk of heart attack is going to go from, say, 30% down to 20% over the next 10 years. What does that really mean? Well, you know, look at this diagram. It means that, you know, out of 100 people, 10 of them are going to get to see their child graduate from high school or college. And so we think that giving clinicians that language may be helpful. In addition to that, we'll also be providing decision support tools as well. 
And I don't want to underemphasize how important that is. One of the great successes of modern medicine and our clinical partners right now, every doctor that's out there, is that we have dramatically already reduced the number of that's right. people who are dying of heart attack that's and right. stroke. So they're already doing a wonderful job, and this is going to ideally continue and hopefully accelerate that decline. We're speaking today with Dr. Darshak Sanghavi, Director of the Preventive and Population Healthcare Models Group at the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation. Dr. Sanghavi recently served as the Managing Director of the Engelberg Center for Health Reform at the Brookings Institution. He also served as uh, Chief of Pediatric Cardiology at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. So let's talk a little more about payment reform. and that, That's an area that you were focused in on your research when you were at Brookings. And uh, one of the ultimate goals of uh, the Million Hearts model is to reduce cost. And I really like this rolling analysis every year. You're sort of taking a look at the model and how effective it is. What are you seeing around the world in terms of uh, models of reimbursement that excite you around prevention? And I, and I think we always know that there's sort of an American solution. So we have to be very cognizant of that. So I'm just wondering, is it informed by other work elsewhere? Traditionally, medical care just because of the way reimbursement works. It's pretty simple, you know. We always say an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, but what if that pound of cure is 10, 20, 30 years away? You know, even though we think it's a good idea, it's harder and harder to make that big investment up front, especially if you're a payer or an insurer in the private market or you're a state or local government, to really put those resources in. And what if they move or they're gone after even five or 10 years? You don't really reap the benefits. The solution that we're trying to propose is basically twofold. The first is that we want to sort of create a national environment. And we believe that where Medicare goes, ideally, or signals, other insurers hopefully will follow. Mm -hmm. One of the key things we're finding at the Innovation Center is that the models of payment that really tend to succeed are ones where you don't just have one payer working in isolation. So our accountable care organizations and others, we are strongly trying to encourage multi-payer participation. Because, you know, that sort of eliminates that wrong pocket problem of, hey, if I pay for preventive care now and my colleague down the street doesn't, he's going to get make more money and he's going to reap the benefit of my investment. So I'd say the first thing is that sort of recognition that we need to focus on making sure our payers are sort of integrated up front. And then the second then is to say, well, we need to also rethink how we value prevention in the long term. With our Million Hearts model, we're saying, well, look, we're going to pay for this predicted future outcome in reducing that because we know the data is really, really good. And so we're, gonna, we're essentially paying for prevention and finding a new way to do that. So the more you reduce a long-term risk, maybe the more you can get paid. And those are sort of the payment models we're exploring at this mm-hmm. point. You know, Dr. Sankavi, I know that you are a pediatrics person at heart and in your clinical practice, and, and this initiative is weighted towards the older adult. But I wonder if you'd, you'd comment on what we can be doing, what more we can be doing with the adolescents uh, in particular and the kids about trying to keep them from turning into our cardiovascular uh, disease-ridden adults of the future. Let me start by saying I'm actually very optimistic on this front. We are at historically low uh, tobacco use rates among young people now due to this concerted uh, partnership, not only between clinicians, but between public health organizations and even broader into our media. And really it's a cultural shift that we've seen. I also harbor a great deal of optimism that we'll get there in relation to obesity. 
uh, better uh, nutrition as well as exercise over time. But it's difficult to tell, and I think sort of the crux of the question is, well, what role does a payer like Medicaid or Medicare have, and what role does the traditional medical system have there as well? And probably the simplest way to sort of phrase the solution is that we have to place an increased emphasis both on primary care as well as public health, because we believe that within those areas lie the fruits of reaching a large number of people. Mm -hmm. And traditionally, we've done it through public health authorities because they sort of are out of the fee-for-service system or getting paid for visits. Mm -hmm. I believe that the way we're also getting there now is by broadly moving away from fee-for-service to accountable care organizations and sort of this alternative payment model strategy, and then looking at broad-based health indicators. But I think that those are the ways we're going to try to address this. It's only by breaking the cycle of sort of fee-for-service that we can then start to recognize and reward broad-based community improvements in exactly these types of long-term preventive areas. And along with that, the sort of cultivation of the of empowering uh, patients, uh, which has been called sort of the blockbuster drug of the 21st century. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of movement in that area. You certainly mentioned that the, the enormous reduction of, uh, of uh, tobacco usage uh, by young people, sort of a cultural change, and a lot going on in technology, wearing of uh, health tracking devices, is growing telemedicine, remote monitoring, also gaining momentum, and more people are educating themselves about health and uh, health, wellness and solutions. In fact, while you were at Brookings, uh, you partnered with uh, Khan Academy. So tell our listeners how successful that campaign was and how do you see these other technologies really coming to play as we shift focus from sort of sick care to well care and prevention? Right. That's a great question. I, I would like to think that the work we did with the Khan Academy and more broadly with public, public engagement has completely demystified health reform for the American public. And I am sad to report, I think, <laughs> we've only been partially successful. But you know, th- those efforts were, um, were a start. You know, thousands of people have viewed those educational materials we developed. And, and clearly, we were not alone. Many others are out there as well. I think that health reform is complicated, uh, it's deep, and it's politically fraught. And so we still have a fair amount mm-hmm. of work to do in, in educating people about these kinds of issues. But again, having said that, I want to come back to sort of this optimism I feel. I, I realize that every time I go to the pharmacy, uh, the people who make toothpaste have an enormous degree of faith that I can understand, you know, the differences between 50 different kinds of toothpaste, evaluate different claims, and then make a purchase. And while that's a little funny, you know, I think that we can do the same thing in healthcare. Mm-hmm. You know, Americans have an enormous appetite to know more. Mm-hmm. And I think that one of the ways we're getting there is, although we, we are sort of in, involved in this broad-based strategy to improve the transparency of how much we charge for the services, as well as making electronic medical records more freely available to people. And in that way, that is exactly sort of empowering patients to understand, hey, where is my money going? What's going on with my health? And how can I participate in that kind of care? Not only that, in addition to just the information, with the move towards high deductible health plans. I mean, that's a complicated, politically challenging thing. However, when you know your own money is at risk to some extent, you are going to start asking questions and engaging in ways that perhaps you didn't before. 
it's our job to make sure that we give people the tools so they can make decisions if they're going to be taking some of that risk. But that's the other way. I think that that market is going to be continually expanding and hopefully we'll be playing at CMS and other places a, a part in sort of making sure that we help patients navigate that well. We've been speaking today with Dr. Darshak Sangavi, Director of the Preventive and Population Healthcare Models Group at the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation. You can learn more about their work by going to millionhearts.hhs.gov or follow him on Twitter by going to at Darshak Sangavi or at CMS Innovates. Dr. Sangavi, thank you so much for your optimism, your work, and for joining us on Conversations on Healthcare today. A great pleasure. Thank you. Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of FactCheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? Jeb Bush claimed that Planned Parenthood shouldn't receive federal funding because, quote, they're not actually doing women's health issues. That's simply false. In 2013, Planned Parenthood clinics provided nearly 10.6 million services to 2.7 million women and men, including contraception, tests and treatment for sexually transmitted diseases, cancer screenings, abortions, and several other women's health services. That's according to the organization's most recent annual report. Politicians who are against abortion have pushed to defund Planned Parenthood after undercover videos showed Planned Parenthood officials talking about aborted fetal tissue being collected and used for research. According to Planned Parenthood figures, abortions represent 3% of the organization's total services and about 12% of its clients received an abortion. Its services for 2013 also included 4.5 million tests and treatment for sexually transmitted infections, 3.6 million contraception services, more than 900,000 cancer screenings, and 1.1 million pregnancy tests and prenatal services. Planned Parenthood received $528.4 million in federal and state government money in 2013. Federal money cannot be used for abortions except in cases of rape, incest, and to save the life of the mother. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Of the 6.6 million births per year in this country, over half are unintended. And among teens, those rates are even higher. Colorado has been conducting an experiment for several years to examine what might happen if sexually active teens and poor women were offered the option of long-term birth control, such as IUDs or implants. The first question to answer, would they take the offer? What was so striking was the word of mouth uh, amongst um, these young women to each other and the network of support that was built uh, amongst uh, these young women 
to access uh, this program through these clinics uh, and to help the tens of thousands of, of women over the course of the four to five years um, really uh, did then um, result in um, these significant decreases um, in um, unintended pregnancies and abortion. Dr. Larry Wolk is medical director of the Colorado Department of Health and Environment. He says the results were nothing short of astounding. The resultant decrease is 40% plus or minus in, in both categories, pregnancy and abortion, over these four to five years. And I'll give you a, a sneak peek preview into preliminary data for um, 2014, for which it looks like those reductions may be even more dramatic uh, when you extend this out over an additional year to more than 50, even approaching 60% reduction in um, those unintended pregnancies and abortions. And the results showed not only a dramatic decrease in unintended pregnancies, there was a significant economic benefit to the state as well. We've seen a significant decrease in the number of young moms and kids uh, applying for and, and needing public assistance, whether that's public insurance, whether that's through the WIC program. You know, we hope that then longer term, this will translate into better social and economic outcomes for these folks and for us as a state and, and our state's population. And in spite of what conventional wisdom might lead one to assume, the incidence of sexually transmitted diseases dropped in this population as well. We've been doing background surveillance uh, of our sexually transmitted uh, diseases here in Colorado. And amongst young women, 15 to 24, we've seen a decrease in sexually transmitted infections, and the rates are now below the national averages. Many other state health departments are already consulting with Colorado on the successful outcome of their experiment. A free, long-term contraception program offered to at-risk teens and women trying to avoid the economic hardship of unplanned pregnancies leading to a number of positive health and economic outcomes for all involved. Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare, broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center. Mm-hmm.